0: Hi, I'm Neil, and I'm a member here at Creech. Now, anyone who knows me, or has ever seen me wearing a t-shirt, will know that I've never met a calorie I didn't like. But my very favourite calories are sweet ones. No matter how good a meal, I can't help but view starters and main courses as little more than a nutritional warm-up act to whet my appetite for the real star of the show, pudding. Sometimes I think it's a shame that we leave dessert to the end of a meal. But I found, from my own extensive research, that if I devour pudding at the start, the meal peaks early and everything else from there tends to go downhill. So why we start in this short series of talks, called Meals with the Messiah, with the Last Supper? Isn't that like feasting on several helpings of tiramisu before the garlic mushrooms even reach the table? Shouldn't this come at the end? Well, yes, to a point, because all the other meals with Jesus that we read about in the Bible are like a proverbial digestif for this pivotal moment. But unlike my dietary deviations, beginning with the Last Supper gives us the ability to better savour everything else in retrospect. And in our looking back, we'll probably see things afresh, just as the disciples did. After the Last Supper, they would have remembered all their meals All their days with Jesus, and suddenly found a totally new taste lingering in their mouths. Ultimately, the whole palette with which they sampled reality would have been radically and permanently changed by that simple Last Supper. So let's go back, right back, back to Exodus 12 and the first Passover. We're in Egypt. And under the Lord's guidance, Moses and Aaron have been wrestling with Pharaoh to release the Israelites, God's anointed people, from the suffocating bonds of Egyptian slavery. But Pharaoh is not easily convinced. So Yahweh, the Lord, has told his people to prepare for what will become known as Passover. It will mark a new start of a calendar year for the Israelites, and they've been commanded to take a lamb, one without defect, and slaughter it ready for tonight. And if they can't afford their own, they're allowed to share a neighbour's. Some of the lamb's blood, they need to paint around the door frames of their homes. Now remember, blood not only symbolizes the very sanctity of life, it's also used throughout the history of God's relationship with his people to seal a promise and mark a bond. For the one to whom it belongs, there's nothing quite so valuable as blood. Then after dark, an angel of death is going to pass through Egypt, striking down every firstborn, both people and animals. It'll dish out a bitter judgment on Egypt, just as Pharaoh has been warned time and again, but has chosen to ignore time and again. Yet the blood on the door frames will act as a sign. The blood will tell the angel of death to pass by this household, sheltering in here a God's protected people. Leave them be. When I see the blood, the Lord says, I will pass over you. Unsurprisingly, this will go on to become a huge day for the children of Israel to commemorate throughout the generations. It will become a massive family festival of joy, remembering God's grace and faithfulness to his people and how he ultimately led them out of slavery and into freedom. Now, let's fast forward about 1400 years or so until we find ourselves in Jerusalem. In the upper room of a private house. The city is crammed at the moment with people who have come for the annual Passover celebration, yet tonight the streets outside are hushed. Everyone's inside, like us, preparing and enjoying the Passover meal in their homes together. As is customary, tonight's meal will probably take around four hours revolving around a slap-up meal and servings of red wine. The red wine symbolises rejoicing, so there'll be plenty of that. We're not sure exactly whose house we're in, nor do we know who that man was at the well, the one who led us up here. Maybe Jesus and a disciple had prearranged it. Maybe not, and it was a modest display of Jesus' divine nature that determined exactly what should happen ahead of time. Similar to last week, when the disciples found that donkey tied up, all prepared and ready for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. By the way, knowing that he would be betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities, it was a smart move by Jesus to keep his whereabouts secret until the very last minute, preventing our meal tonight from being interrupted by an arresting party coming to take Jesus away. For now, that inevitability has been delayed, but make no mistake, Jesus is in full control. So tonight, we're gonna to drink the wine from four cups as is tradition. We call it a cup, but it's more like an earthenware bowl, large enough for us to share. What's interesting is that throughout the Bible, a cup depicts a portion of blessing or a portion of disaster that has been divinely appointed as a person's or a nation's fate. Bear that in mind as our evening progresses, because what is considered a cup of blessing for us will soon signify a cup of suffering for Jesus. Okay, we're ready. The first cup is raised and a solitary voice asks why this night is any different from the others. We raise a reply, we were slaves, but God heard our cry and rescued us. Then we drink from the second cup, accompanied by eating some bitter herbs, really bitter herbs, which remind us of our ancestors pain as slaves. Theirs was a time of oppression made bearable only by the hope of the promised land. Now we're on to the third cup, known as the cup of blessing. We share the cup, but then Jesus says something about not drinking it again until the kingdom of God comes. He's obviously anticipating trouble. At this point, it's usual to tear some unleavened bread, which represents the sacrificed lamb. And unleavened bread just means it doesn't contain yeast, symbolising the fact the Israelites fled Egypt so quickly they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. Anyway, Jesus goes off peace again, and refers to the bread as his body given for us, and that we must tear it in remembrance of him. Things are really ramping up now. This is signifying something much more than what happened centuries ago. He sees himself as taking the place of the faultless lamb, being prepared for sacrifice. Something big is brewing. And then it's on to the fourth and final cup. Normally it's accompanied by some words that we all say together, Lord, send your wrath on your nations that despise you. But again, Jesus does it differently. He says, this cup is a new covenant in his blood poured out for us. Well, there's a strange but heady atmosphere of excitement and confusion rising in the room. We're celebrating a tradition with our rabbi and he's turning it on its head, rewriting our ancestral rule book messing up all expectation of what happens next. Now we're back in present day. We know exactly what happened next. After the meal, Jesus headed out to the Mount of Olives. He was arrested just as he'd anticipated. The following morning, he endured a mock trial and a baying crowd before being led away to the place of the skull, where he was crucified as a criminal that same afternoon. A human sign just hanging there, telling all other would-be revolutionaries that no one messes with Rome. Yet three days later, the kingdom did come, not in might and triumphalism, but in love and service. The throne was established, not as a seat of power, but as a cross of torture. The world was rescued, not from Rome, but from itself. And the king did exercise his rule and reign, not by pouring out wrath on his enemies, but as a lamb who was slain for the salvation of others. So when we take the Lord's Supper today, or Eucharist, Holy Communion, whatever we call it, we're no longer remembering how Yahweh faithfully rescued his people from the fatal judgment that fell on Egypt that night. We're remembering so much more than that. We're remembering how Yahweh, the Lord, continues to be faithful to his people. We're remembering that death hasn't just been avoided for a night, but overthrown forever. We're remembering that through his Son, Jesus Christ, He rescued everyone who believes from the judgment that each of us in our rebellion would otherwise be facing. He drank from the cup of suffering that night so that we may continue to drink from the cup of blessing for eternity. He ushered in a new era, a new covenant, a new promise with his people. And with rejoicing, we shall remember through humble bread and simple wine. And as we do so, we're also reminded that we, as Jesus followers, are bound together in unity. Passover was always a family affair. The Last Supper that night was shared by a band of brothers who lived and served and worshipped together like a family. When we take communion together, look at the word communion. It comes from the same root as common, public, shared by all. We're expressing our unity. The disciples may have bickered that night about petty concerns of prestige and rank in the kingdom. from our perspective we see just how ironic that was but in communion we're equal through communion we symbolize our membership as siblings in the body of Christ where baptism is the person's one-off public initiation into membership of the church communion is our collective ongoing witness and commitment to Jesus commitment to each other and commitment to his church you see The Christian faith was always meant to be personal, but it was never intended to be private. And when we're tempted to explore expressions of church life that move us away from tradition, that update our liturgies of habit and rethink the rites and ceremonies that have gone before us, let's never forget that sharing the Lord's Supper together is the defining mark of the Lord's church. And finally... The Last Supper points ahead to a messianic banquet. It offers a glimpse of what will come when the Lord returns in glory, when we share fellowship together around the King's table, enjoying his and each other's company forever. When bread and wine and, I dare say, tiramisu and garlic mushrooms make it out to the table in the correct order. And as delicious as these dishes are bound to be, we know our deepest hunger will only be truly satisfied in that moment and forevermore by the presence and worship of the risen Jesus.